Arthur Pink, we're looking at spiritual growth, and I don't know, we're around 10 or 11. And we're on the chapter, it's promotion, and uh, it's a long chapter, so we're in the middle of the chapter, and I'll begin where I left off last time. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you, 2 Peter 1, 2. In connection with the apostolic salutations, it needs to be borne in mind first that they were very much more than pious forms of greeting. They were definite prayers on behalf of those to whom the epistles were addressed. Second, since these prayers were immediately and verbally inspired by the Holy Spirit, they most certainly contained requests for those things which were according to the divine will. <clears throat> Third, in supplicating God for what they did, the apostles set before their readers an example, teaching them what they most needed and what they should especially ask for. Fourth, thus Christians today have a sure index for their guidance and should be at no loss to decide whether they are warranted in praying for such and such a spiritual blessings. Blessing. Believers today may be fully assured that it is both their privilege and duty to seek from God not only an increase, but also a multiplication of the grace which he has already bestowed upon them. The need for increased grace is real and imperative. An act of nature such as a man, man's must grow worse or better. And therefore we should be as deeply concerned about the increase of grace as we should be cautious about the loss of grace. The Christian life is a pulling against the current of the flesh within and the world without. And they who row against the stream must need ply their oars vigorously and continuously, or the force of the waters will carry them backward. <coughs> if a man be toiling up a sandy hill, he will sink down if he does not go up forward. And unless the Christian's affections be increasingly set upon objects above, then they will soon be immersed in the things of time and sense. Very solemn and searching is the warning of our Lord, the man who did not improve his talent lost it, Matthew 25, 28. Many a Christian who once had zeal in the Lord's service and such joy in his soul have them no more. Yet still more solemn is to note that the call of let us go on into perfection is at once followed by a description of the state and doom of apostates. Hebrews 6, 1 and 4. As Thomas Manton pointed out, it is an ill sign to be contented with a little grace. He was never good that doth not desire to grow better. Spiritual things do not cloy in the enjoyment. He that hath once tasted the sweetness of grace hath arguments enough to make him seek further grace. Every degree of holiness is as desirable as the first. Therefore, there can be no true holiness without a desire of perfect holiness. God giveth us a taste to this end and purpose that we may long for a fuller draught. Yet, he does not force the further draught upon us, but often tests us to see if such is really wanted by us as Christ, after communing with us, communing with the two disciples on the way to Emmaus and making their hearts burn within them while he talked with them in the way, then made as though they had gone further. They arrived at their destination, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, Luke 24, 28-32. The grapes of Eshgal were a sample of what Canaan produced and fired the zeal of Joshua and Caleb to go up and possess the land. But their unbelieving brethren were content with the sample and never obtained anything more. In the outward part of the Christian life, there be too much, but not so in the inward. If there is a zeal which is not according to knowledge, a restless energy of the flesh which spurs to activities which Scripture nowhere enjoins, but such works as those as are termed will worship, Colossians 
and are often dictated by mere traditions or superstitions, or simply the Im imitation of what other church members engage in. But there cannot be too much faith in God, too much of his holy fear upon us, nor too much knowledge of spiritual things, nor too much denying of self and devotion to Christ, nor too much love for our fellow saints. For all such virtues we need abundant grace. There are some who are far from the kingdom of God, having no deep concern for their souls. Ephesians 2.13 There are others who come near to the kingdom of God. Mark 12.34 Yet never enter into it. Acts 26.18 and there are some who enter, but who make little progress in our poor testimonials to Christ. But there are a few of whom it is said, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly unto everlasting kingdom, the everlasting kingdom. 2 Peter 1.11 And as the context shows, they are the ones who give diligence, putting their soul's interest before everything else. Those who improve the grace given thereby make room for more. Luke 8.18 8, and ensure for themselves a more ample reward in the day to come. We fully concur with Manton that, quote, according to our measures of grace, so will our measures of glory be. For they have most grace are vessels of larger capacity. Others are filled according to their size, end of quote. We know there was not full agreement among the Puritans on this point, though we could quote from others of them who held that there be degrees of glory among the saints in heaven, as there will be degrees of punishment among the lost in hell. And why not? There are considerable diversities among the angels on high, Ephesians 1, 21, etc. It cannot be gainsaid that God dispenses the gifts and graces of the Spirit unequally among his people on earth. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that God will suit our rewards according to our services and our crowns according to the improvement we have made of his grace and of our opportunities and privileges. The reaping will be in proportion to the sowing, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and Galatians 6, 8. True, every crown will be cast at the feet of Christ, but the crowns will not be in all respects alike. Labor, then, to get more grace and improve the same. Thus, there is abundant reason why the child of God should not only seek for more grace, but that grace may be multiplied unto him. If an earthly monarch should invite one of his subjects to ask a favor of him, he would not feel himself flattered if only some trifling thing were requested. Nor do we honor the so sovereign of heaven by making petty requests. We are coming to a king. Large petitions let us bring. Does he not bid us open my mouth wide and I will fill it? Psalm 81.10 Think you that he means not what he says? Does he not invite us to drink, a drink abundantly from the fountains of grace? Oh, beloved, Song of Solomon 5.1 Then why not take him at his word? He is the God of all grace. <clears throat> First Peter 5.10 And has revealed to us the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1, 7. Yea, the exceeding riches of his grace, Ephesians 2, 7. And for whom they are available, if not for those who feel their deep need of and tr trustfully seek them. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound toward you. And he would not have told us this if he was not also willing to do so. And let us anticipate an objection which might be expressed thus. I realize that spiritual growth is entirely dependent on receiving fresh supplies of grace from God, and that it is my responsibility and duty to diligently and confidently seek the same. I have done so, yet instead of grace having been multiplied to me, my stock has diminished. So far from pro having progressed, I have gone backward. Instead of my iniquities being subdued, Micah 7.19, my lusts rage more fiercely than ever. Several replies may be made. 
First, you have not sought us earnestly as you should. Asking and seeking are not sufficient. The rest would be an insistent knocking, Matthew 7, 7, a holy striving after God, Romans 15, 30. A saying with Jacob, I will not let thee go unless thou bless thee. Bless me, Genesis 32:26. Second, God's time to grant your request may have not arrived. Therefore, the Lord will wait that he be gracious unto you. Isaiah 30, 18. He waits to test your faith, and because he requires persistence and importunity from you, us, what is hard to obtain is valued more highly than what comes easily. Third, it is to be borne in mind that infusion of grace into the soul prompt, promptly evokes enmity of the flesh, and the more grace be given us, the more sin will resist it. Very soon after Christ came into the world, Herod stirred up the country against him, seeking to slay him. And when Christ enters a soul, the whole indwelling of sin is stirred against him, for he has come there as an enemy. The more grace we have, the more conscious we are of our corruptions, and the more we are occupied with them, the less conscious we are of our grace. As grace is increased, so too our sense of need. Fourth, God does not always answer in kind. You have asked for increased holiness and been answered with more light, for a removal of a burden, and been given more strength to carry it. You have sought for victory over your lust, and have been giving humbling grace, so that you both loathe yourself more deeply. You besought the Lord to take away the thorn in your flesh, and he has answered by giving you grace to bear it. And that's the end of that chapter, and we come to chapter 9. It's means. Roman numeral 1. After what we have said previously, it may sound almost superfluous to follow with a chapter devoted to the presentation of the principal means of spiritual growth. If success in the Christian life really narrows down to our obtaining fresh supplies of grace from God, then why enumerate and describe in detail the various aids which are to be employed for the promotion of personal godliness? Because the expression seeking fresh supplies of grace is a far more extensive one than is commonly supposed. The means are really the channels through which grace comes to us. When expounding Matthew 7, 7 in our book, Sermon on the Mount, it was pointed out that in seeking grace to enable the believer to live a spiritual and supernatural life in this world, though such enablement is to be sought at the throne of grace, yet that does not render unless nor exempt the Christian from diligently employing the additional means and agencies which God has appointed for the blessing of his people. Prayer must not be allowed to induce lethargy in those directions or become a substitute for putting forth of our energies in other ways. We are called upon to watch as well as to pray, to deny self, strive against sin, to take up the whole armor of God and fight the good fight of faith. In the preceding portions of the sermon, sermon, Christ has presented a standard of moral excellency, which is utterly unobtainable by mere flesh and blood. He has inculcated one requirement after another that lies not within the power of fallen nature to meet. He has forbidden an in appropriate word, a malignant wish, an impure desire, a revengeful thought. He has enjoyed the most unsparing mortification of our dearest lusts. He has commanded the loving of our enemies, the blessing of those who curse us, and the doing good to us who hate us, and the praying for those who despitefully use and persecute us. In view of which the Christian may well exclaim, who is sufficient for these things? Such demands of holiness are far beyond my feeble strength. Yet the Lord has made them what them what then am I to do? Here is his own answer. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. The Lord Jesus knew that in our own wisdom and strength we are incapable of keeping his commandments. 
but he at once informed us of the things which are ordinarily impossible to men can be made possible by God. Divine assistance is imperative if we are to meet the divine requirements. We need divine mercy to pardon and cleanse, power to subdue our raging lust, quickening to animate our feeble graces, light in our path that we avoid the snares of the devil, and wisdom from above for the solving of our various problems. Only God himself can relieve our distresses and supply all our need. His assistance, then, is to be sought prayerfully, believingly, diligently, and expectantly. And if it be thus sought, it will not be sought in vain. For the same passage goes on to assure us, What man is there of you? Whom if a son asks bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks a fish, will give him a serpent. If ye, then being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Matthew 7, 9 to 11. What inducement is that? Yet other means besides prayer are said to be used by us if we are to obtain that help and succor which we so sorely need. There are three principal dangers against which the Christian needs to guard us in connection with the various means which God has appointed for a spiritual growth. First, to lay too much stress upon and pointed for a spiritual growth. First, excuse me, first to lay too much stress upon and dependence in them. They are but means and will avail nothing unless God bless them to him. Second, going to the opposite extreme by understanding them or imagining he can get above them. There are some who give way to fanaticism or persuade themselves that they have been so baptized by the Spirit as to be independent of helps. Third, to look for that in them which can come only from God and Christ. No doubt there is room for difference of opinion as to what are the particular means by which most which are most conductive unto Christian prosperity. And certainly, there is a considerable variety of method among those who have written on that, on the subject, some throwing their main emphasis on one aspect of it and some on another. Nor is there any agreement in the order in which they set forth the several aids to growth. We shall therefore present them to the reader according as they appear to us in the light of Scripture. Number one. Mortifying of the flesh. In order to obtain flesh supplies of grace, constant watchfulness needs to be exercised that we do not cut ourselves off from the source of those supplies. If such a statement jars upon some of our readers, having to them a legalistic or Arminian sound in it, we fear it is because their sensibilities are not fully regulated by the teachings of Holy Writ. Would it not be foolish to me to blame the bulb for emitting no light if I had switched off the electric current? Equally vain is it to attribute any lack of grace in me to the unwillingness of God to bestow it if I had several severed communion with him? <clears throat> Should it be objective that to draw such analogy is carnal, we reply our object is simply to illustrate. But does not the Lord himself distinctly affirm, your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear? Isaiah 59.2 then how can I draw from the fountain of grace if I have cut myself off from it? None but a fanatical enthusiast will argue that a Christian may obtain a fuller knowledge of God's will and increase light on his path while he neglects his Bible and books and preaching thereon. Nor will the Holy Spirit open the word to me if I am indulging in the lust of the flesh and allowing sin in my heart and life. Equally clear is it that no Christian has any scriptural warrant to expect he will receive wisdom and strength from above while he neglects the throne of grace. 
And should he keep up the form of praying while following a course of self-will and self-pleasing, answers of peace will be withheld from him. If I regard, and the word means cherish, iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Psalm 66, 18. Ye ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. James 4, 3. <clears throat> the Holy One will be no lackey under a carnality. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, that is, refuses to tread in path of obedience and is subjects to God's authority, even his prayer shall be an abomination. Proverbs 28.9 For under such circumstances, praying would be downright hypocrisy, a mocking of God. It is therefore apparent that there is something which must take precedence of either praying or feeding on the word if the Christian is to make progress in the spiritual life. Whether or not we have succeeding, we are we have succeeded in making the evident to the reader. Scripture is quite plain on this point. We are bidden to receive with meekness the engrafted word. But before we can do so, we must first comply with it, what immediately proceeds, namely, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. James 1.21 Room has to be made in our hearts for the word. The old lumber has to be cleaned out before the new furnishings can be moved in. We are exhorted as newborn boys, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, 1 Peter 2.2. 2. Ah, but there is something else before that, and which must needs first be added to. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings, verse 1. There has to be a divine pur a purging of our corruptions, ere there will be a spiritual appetite for divine things. The natural man may study the Bible to become intellectually informed of its contents, but there has to be a laying aside of the things God hates before the soul will really hunger for the bread of life. That to which we have just called attention has not been sufficiently recognized. It is one thing to read the scriptures and become acquainted with their teachings. It's quite another to really feed upon them and for the life to be transformed thereby. God's word is a holy word. It requires holiness of heart from the one who would be profited by it. The soul must be attuned to the message and transmission before there will be any real reception. And in order to holiness of soul, sin must be resisted, self-denied, corrupt, lust mortified. What we are here insisting upon is illustrated and demonstrated by the uniform order of Scripture. We, <coughs> we have to hate evil before we love the good, Amos 5.15, and cease to do evil ere we can learn to do well, Isaiah 1.16 and 17. Self has to be denied and the cross taken up before we can follow Christ. Matthew 16, 24. We have to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit if we would be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. We cannot put on the new man, Ephesians 2, 22, until we have put off concerning the former conversation or manner of life, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts, Ephesians 2, 20. Sin indwells all Christians and is actively opposed to the principle of grace or the new nature. When they would do good, evil is present with them. Indwelling sin of the flesh, corrupt nature has no good thing dwelling in it, Romans 7.18. Its nature is entirely evil. It is beyond reclamation, being incapable of any improvement. It may put on a religious garb, as in the case of the Pharisees, but beneath it is nothing but rottenness. As one has truly said, no good can be adduced out of it, fire may soon be struck out of ice, as good dispositions and motions be produced out of a corrupt heart of the regenerate. In the corrupt heart of the regenerate. 
It will never be produced in the corrupt heart of the regenerate. It will never be prevailed upon to concur with the new principle in any of those acts which it puts forth. Hence, the mind of the believer is at no time wholly spiritual and holy in its acts. There is more or less a resistance in his soul for what is holy at all seasons. As the flesh continually opposes what is good, so it, will ever disp it ever disposes the will to what is evil. It desires, its desires and motions are constantly towards objects which are vain and carnal. So far it is permitted to control the Christian, it beclouds his judgment, captivates his affections, and enslaves his will. Now the principles of grace, the Spirit has been communicated to the saint for the express purpose of, a pro, of opposing the solicitations of the flesh and for the indwelling of him unto holiness. Thus the whole of his duty may be summed up in these two things, to die unto sin and to live unto God. He can only live unto God in exact proportion as he has died unto sin, as he dies unto sin. That should be self-evident, for since sin is hostile to God entirely, and invariably so, only so far as we rise above its evil influences are we free to act Godwards. Therefore, our progress in the Christian life is to be measured by the degree of our deliverance from the power of indwelling sin. And that, in turn, will be determined by how resolutely, earnestly, and untiringly we set ourselves to this great task of fighting against our corruptions. The weeds must be plucked up before the flowers can grow in the garden. And our lusts must be mortified if our graces are to flourish. Sin and grace each demand the governance of the soul. And it is the Christian's responsibility to see to it that the former is denied and the latter given the right to reign over him. For if you lived after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Romans 8.13 That at once shows us the fundamental and vital importance of this duty. Or attendance or non-attendance thereto is a matter of life or death. Mortification is not optional, but optional, but imperative. The solemn alternative is plainly stated. These words, those words are addressed to the saints, and they are faithfully warned, if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die, that is, die spiritually and eternally. To live after the flesh is to live as do the unregenerate, who are motivated, actuated, and dominated by nothing but their own fallen nature. To live after the flesh refers not to a single action, nor even to a whole series of actions in one particular direction, but to the whole man, to be regulated by the evil principle. Education and culture may produce a refined exterior. Family training or other influences may lead to a profession of religion. But the love of God prompts neither, nor is his glory the end. To live after the flesh is to follow our fallen nature to govern our character, to allow the, our fallen nature to govern our character and guide our conduct. And such is the case with all the unregenerate. But if through the Spirit you do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Note well, if ye do. It is a duty assigned the Christian. It is a task which calls for self-effort. Yet it is not a work for which he is sufficient in himself, of himself. It can only be accomplished through the Spirit. But care has to be taken at this point, lest we lapse into error. It is not if the Spirit through you, but if ye through the Spirit. The believer is not a cipher in this undertaking. The Spirit is not given to relieve us of the discharge of a responsibility in this all-important matter, but rather to equip us for our discharge of the same. The Spirit operates by making us more sensible of indwelling sin, by deepening our aspirations after holiness, by causing the love of Christ to constrain, by strengthening us with his might in the inner man. But we are the ones who are required to mortify the deeds of the body. 
that is, resist the workings of sin, deny self, put to death our lusts, refuse to live after the flesh. We must not, under the guise of honoring the Spirit, repudiate our responsibility, or under the pretext of waiting for the Spirit to move us, or empower us, lapse into a state of passivity. And uh, what Pink is uh, speaking about here is the, uh, there was a movement in the late 1800s that went into the early 1900s, uh, this let go and let God, and you're entirely passive, and you'll have total victory over sin if you just let go and let, and that's totally contrary to what the New Testament teaches. Sanctification is something we have to be extremely active in, where we study the Word, where we pray, where we strive against sin, where we watch and pray against sin. And this let go and let God is the opposite of that. And, of course, it is connected to what became the charismatic movement, and it flows really from the heresy of the, the heretical view of sanctification that came from Methodism and, and Wesley let go and let God. The Puritan view is the biblical view. And of course, a lot of this teaching, this chapter comes directly out of John Owen. If you've read John Owen on Sin and Temptation, this is where Pink is getting a lot of this stuff. Pink is great because he modernizes it and he makes it easy to understand and he summarizes it. John Owen, his sentence structure can be difficult. <clears throat> we must not, under the guise of honoring spirit, repudiate our accountability. or under the pretext of the waiting for the spirit to move us or empower us, lapse into a state of passivity. God has called us to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, 2 Corinthians 7.1, to put off concerning the former conversation the old man, Ephesians 4.22, to keep ourselves from idols, 1 John 5.21. And he will not accept the excuse of our inability as a valid plea. If we be his children, he has infused his grace into our hearts. And that grace is to be employed in this very task of mortifying our lusts. And the way to get more grace is to make a more diligent use of what he already, we already have. We do not honor the Spirit by inertia. We honor him and magnify grace when we can say with David, I kept myself from mine iniquity. Psalm 18.23 and with Paul, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. 1 Corinthians 9.24. True, it was by a divine enablement, yet it was not something which God did for them. There was self-effort rendered successful by divine grace. Remember, sanctification is a process in which you cooperate with the works of, with the uh, means of grace. You have to cooperate. You have to listen to good sermons. You have to meditate on the word. You have to study the word. You have to pray for help. You have to attend the sacraments. These things are all critical. Observe it is not if we have through the spirit mortify the deeds of the body, but if ye do mortify. It is not something which may be done once for all, but a continuous thing, a lifelong task which is set before the Christian. The term mortify is here is used figuratively, inasmuch as the physical term applied to that which is immaterial, yet its force is evilly perceived. Literally, the word signifies put to death, which implies it is both a painful and difficult task. The weakest creature may put up some resistance when life, its life is threatened. And since sin is the most powerful principle, it will make a mighty struggle to preserve its existence. The Christian then is called upon to exert a self-constant, a constant and all-out endeavor to subdue his lusts, resist their inclinations, and deny their solicitations. Striving against sin, Hebrews 12.4, not only against one particular form of its outbreakings, but against all of them, and especially against the root from which they proceed, the flesh. 
How is the Christian to set about this all-important work? First, by starving his evil nature. Make not provision for the flesh, Romans 13, 14. There are two ways of causing a fire to go out, to cease feeding it with fuel and to pour water on it. God does not require us to macerate our bodies nor to adopt severe external austerities, but we are to abstain from pampering and pleasing them. To ask meat for our bodies is necessary, necessary a duty, but to ask meat for our lust is provoking to God. Psalm 78, 18, Matthew Henry. Provision for the flesh is anything which has the least tendency to minister unto its appetites. Whatever would stir our carnal lusts must be abstained from. There are mental lusts as well as physical, such as pride, covetous, envy, malice, presumption. These too must be starved and denied, for they are filthiness of the spirit, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. And void all excess, be temperate in all things, second. Refuse any familiarity with worldlings, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, Ephesians 5, 11. Shun evil companions, for a companion of fools will be destroyed, Proverbs 13, 20. Enter not into the path of the wicked, avoid it, pass not Pass not by it, turn from it. Proverbs 4, 13 and 14. Even those having a form of godliness, but who in practice are denying the power thereof, God says, from such turn away. 2 Timothy 3 5. <coughs> Third, keep thy heart with all diligence for out of are the issues of life. Proverbs 4 23. Take yourself firmly in hand and maintain a strict discipline over your inner man, especially your desire and thoughts. Unlawful desires and evil imaginations need to be nipped in the bud. By sternly resisting them at our first consciousness of the same. As it is much easier to pluck up weeds while they are young, or to quench a fire before it takes a firm hold, so it is much simpler to deal with the initial stirrings of our lusts than after they have conceived, see James 1.15. Refuse to parley with the first temptation. Suffer not your mind to cogitate upon anything Scripture disallows. Fourth, keep short accounts with God. As soon as you are conscious of failure, excuse it not, but per penitently confess it to Him. Let not sins accumulate on your conscience, but frankly and promptly acknowledge them to the Lord. Bathe daily in the fountain which has been opened for sin and for uncleanness. Zechariah 13.1 It is strange that so many other writers on this subject have failed to place first among the means of spiritual growth this work of mortifying the flesh. For it should not be quite obvious that it must take precedence over everything else. Of what avail can, can it be to read and study the word, to spend more time in prayer, to seek to develop my graces, while I ignore and neglect within me, which will neutralize and maul our other efforts. What would be the use of sprinkling fertilizer on my ground if I allowed the weeds to grow and multiply there? Of what avail would it be my watering and pruning of a rose bush if I knew there was a great uh, a pest gnarling at its roots? Settle it then in your mind, dear reader, that no progress can be made by you in the Christian life until you realize the paramount importance and imperative necessity of waging a ceaseless warfare against indwelling sin. And not only realize the need for the same, but resolutely gird yourself for and engage in the task, ever seeking the Spirit's help to give you success therein. The Canaanites must be ruthlessly exterminated if Israel was to occupy the land of milk and honey and enjoy peace and prosperity 
there, and we'll end there. And I'll just say a few more things. Um, I don't know if he's going to go into it, but Jay Adams, uh, who's written a bunch of books on Christian counseling, is really good on this. And you not only want to uh, avoid and stop and put to death and mortify uh, those things that are unlawful, whether it's uh, hatred or uh, speaking evil or gossiping or lust or looking at dirty pictures or whatever, fornication, all those things, you, you nip it in the bud. But you want to replace it with a godly counterpart that, that helps you. And so I tell young men, I've had men you know, who struggle with uh, lust, and they're not married. And I say, well, you need to get married. You need to get married. That's Paul. Paul says, uh, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And he's, he's referring in, in a sexual manner. Don't, don't touch a woman. Don't touch her at all. But because of this problem, this, and, and it's, that's a special problem with unmarried men because, uh, of they have physical desires that are, uh, you know, can take, hold hands with the flesh. Uh, they need to get married, and they need to take care of that responsibility in marriage. So you want to put off and put on, Ephesians chapter 4. Put off lying, speak truth with your neighbor. Uh, put off being a lazy bum and collecting welfare, get a job so you can help other Christians. I'm paraphrasing Paul. Uh, put off anger. Speak words of peace. So, so you, we want to do we want to do both, and it's something we always have to struggle with. It's one of those things. Uh, if you don't fight it, you'll lose. You have to fight it every day. Let us pray, Father. We thank you for this very helpful work on spiritual growth by Pink. Help us to be fully consistent. Help us to apply these things to our heart. Help us to fight everything that is contrary to your word in our hearts, in our minds, from our lips, from our hands, everything. In Jesus' name, amen.